This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you are the true vine, and we have no life except that we receive it from you. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts that we may fully love you and always remain rooted in you. Amen. You may be seated. So right as I was finishing seminary in 2007, Mother Tish and I began thinking seriously about the way that food is produced in our country. We became really quite concerned in particular about feedlots and crop monocultures. And as I was kind of digging around on these questions, I discovered Michael Pollan's book, The Omnivore's Dilemma. It was so compellingly written that one night, and this was of course before I had children, I stayed up all night reading it. Even though this isn't the reason that I got into the book, the part of the book that most gripped me was the section on mushrooms. His description of them quite surprisingly filled me with wonder. And Pollen says that mushrooms are the most mysterious and least understood entities in the entirety of the natural world. Pollen says that he was talking to one of the world's most renowned mycologist. That's a scientist who studies mushrooms, in case you don't know. And he said, what are the big open questions in your field? Without missing a beat, the mycologist said, why here and not there? Why now and not then? In other words, Paul says, we don't know the most basic things about mushrooms. He goes on to say that part of the problem is simply that fungi are very difficult to observe. What we call a mushroom is only the tip of the iceberg of a much bigger and essentially in invisible organism that lives most of its life underground. The mushroom is merely the fruiting body of a subterranean network of microscopic hyphae and probably long root-like cells that thread themselves through the soil like neurons. So you can imagine it's like a giant brain all underground and invisible, microscopic. And these hyphae are bunched like cables and they form dense but microscopic webs called mycelia. You can't even dig these webs up to study them because they're so delicate that when you dig them up, they disintegrate. And Pauline concludes that hard as it may be to see a mushroom, the most visible and tangible part, to see the whole organism of which it is merely a component, may be simply impossible. Now, this description kept me up all night on the edge of my seat because I think mushrooms are a bona fide miracle. But actually, the whole created order is like that. It's a miracle. As Wendell Berry says, life itself is a miracle. The wonder I felt thinking about mushrooms is what we ought to feel when we think about the operation of the natural world in its totality. And the scriptures and the Christian tradition teach us to think about the natural world as full of mystery. Although the material order is stable, although it can be studied and mapped, we are never to think that our understanding of this order is comprehensive or that it ever could be. Creation has depths that can never, as it were, be plumbed or mined by finite creatures like us. One of the mysteries of our creation, of the creation, as our psalm for today tells us, is that it is forever voicelessly praising the Creator. In fact, it's part of the vocation that was given to us as human beings to voice creation's praise. We were made to give intelligible utterance to the song that the creation is forever singing in its own language. That was part of our vocation 
from, from our inception, from the inception of creation itself. And creation waits in eager anticipation for us to be restored in that calling. The creation bears these depths because God has made it to display His perfections, His beauty, His grandeur. And because of the infinite depths that the creation possesses, it's also the source for all of the richest metaphors and images that we are given to understand who God is and His interaction with His creation. We're actually robbed of the wonder we are meant to experience in the depths of the creation because of our detachment from the land and from the natural order. I'm going to come back to this point in a little bit, but I just want to say that if we're going to deepen in our appreciation for the gospel itself, we have to immerse ourselves in and pay close attention to the glory of God that's embedded in the creation. So in our gospel passage from today, we see Jesus drawing on an organic and agricultural image, the vine, which he actually takes from Israel's history. It's, a, it's, a, it's an image that has deep roots in Israel's history itself. And he uses that image to express the Holy Spirit's work to grow the gospel in our hearts and our minds and our bodies so that our whole personality comes to reflect the work and the transformation of Jesus Christ. The way a vine's branches are nourished through the life of a vine and slowly grow and bear much fruit is something that we have to have internalized and understood if we're going to really grasp what Jesus is about here. And this itself, this way, the way that a vine works and grows, is something that can be studied but never exhausted. And the scriptures and the tradition teach us to see abundance and fecundity in the creation itself as an aspect of its goodness and its effervescence. Goodness is always self-diffusive. It's always expansive. It's always lavish. And goodness grows by spreading life and abundance, not by corrupting or diminishing. That a branch can be clipped from elsewhere and grafted in and given life by a vine that was not its initial source of life is a mystery that should drive us to our knees. That a vine itself can be uprooted from its original soil and replanted elsewhere and flourish in this new soil should cause our minds to reel with astonishment. The plenitude of these created mysteries constantly brim over for those with eyes to see, for those who allow themselves to marvel at the seductive simplicity and the tremendous range of insights that emerge from the metaphorical use of these created realities in Scripture. It's almost as if the created realities were developed simply in order that the, pot the potencies and capabilities that they bear in themselves would give rise to these metaphorical insights. So again, one of the most common images that's used to describe the people of Israel in the Old Testament is that of the vine. It's the same image that Jesus uses here in John 15. Psalm 80 describes the people of Israel as a vine that was transplanted from Egypt. The psalmist says, you drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Its branches reached as far as the sea, its shoots as far as the river. The Lord, through his mighty acts, set his love upon Israel, and in setting his love upon Israel, made Israel lovable. He gave them a home and a place. He allowed them to grow and mature and expand. But you see, Psalm 80 is not a celebratory psalm. It's actually not a hymn of thanksgiving. It's a communal lament. 
It's a, it's a psalm that wails over the low state to which Israel has been reduced. And it is a plea for restoration. It tells of all these mighty acts of God only to, demit, only to lament their desecration. And if you follow the use of this image throughout its other uses in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you see that this theme of bitter lament is repeated over and over and over again. The walls of the vineyard have been broken down. Its hedges have been smashed. Its fruit has been plucked. And boars and other wild beasts have devoured it. And as the psalm laments and prays for restoration, it also points the way forward for restoration. What is this restoration going to look like? The vine has been cut down. It has been burned with fire. The people perish at the Lord's rebuke. But in verse 17, the psalmist turns and asks that the Lord's hand would rest on the man of your right hand, the son of man that you have raised up for yourself. It is through this representative, the Son of Man, in whom the life of the vine is concentrated, that Israel is to be restored. And as we read this passage in our gospel today, this psalm and other descriptions of Israel as a vineyard which has been laid waste and vandalized by sin should be in the back of our minds. Christ is the true vine. He is the vine in whom the divine life that flowed through Israel is concentrated. He is Israel concentrated and represented. He is the Son of Man through whom divine life flows. And in the passage just before us, just before the one we read for today, Jesus has told his disciples that he's going away. But he's not going to abandon them, he says. He will not leave them fatherless as orphans. He will come to them again by another way, a better way, through the Advocate, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will diffuse, or as St. Paul says, will shed abroad the presence of Christ among the hearts of his people like seed. And Christ will grow up through this seed in every heart that remains attached to him, united to him through the Holy Spirit. And the image that Jesus then gives us to understand this growth is this organic image of the vine that's drawn from Israel's history. His disciples have been grafted into Christ, who is the true vine. And as the branches grow and bear fruit, they are pruned by the Father in heaven so that they bear more fruit. There's a fully Trinitarian logic of growth and maturation that Jesus presents to us that is the shape of the Christian life. <coughs> Excuse me. Christ is the mediator. He is the channel or the conduit through which divine restoration comes. The Holy Spirit universalizes and diffuses this presence of God through the people of God. And it is the Father who wills, authorizes, and actualizes all of this organic growth and vitality. This Trinitarian process of restoration means that we are to come to be rooted more and more deeply into the vine, who is the source of life. Now, Tish is in my favorite icon is the icon of Jesus as the true vine. It's an ancient iconographic tradition, but it really flowered in the Eastern Church in the medieval period. If you could put that, that image on the screen, that would be great. The particular exemplar that I'm showing here is from the 15th century by an artist from the Cretan school named Andreas Ritzos. And thank you to the Temple Gallery in London for letting us use this image. Christ the true vine is centered in the frame 
with an open codex of the Gospel of John in his lap, and he's making a sign of blessing with both hands. And the branches that are growing from him and are being blessed into fruitfulness contain first Mary and John the Baptist, and then the apostles. Mother Tish likes to say that when she looks at this icon, she, iman- she imagines the branches flowing on down and through history. And somewhere along down the line, there we are. What this icon illustrates for us powerfully is that only by remaining in Christ and in the apostolic preaching of Christ, we, is that, that's the only way that we remain connected to the source of life. You can, let, you can put that image down now. When we disembed ourselves from Christ and seek life and presence and fullness elsewhere, we wither and we pass away. And that means, quite simply, that Christianity cannot be practiced in a way that isn't demanding, that isn't total, that isn't fully orbed. Anyone who seeks to practice Christianity in this way will ultimately leave it behind. It's too demanding. We must be Christians in every area of our lives. We can hold nothing back from God. The novelist Julian Barnes, who is no kind of religious believer, writes in his achingly beautiful memoir, Nothing to be Frightened of, that religion that does not demand everything of us is not worthy of our time. What's the point of faith, he says, unless you are serious, seriously serious, unless your religion fills, directs, stains, and sustains your life. I love that, that metaphor. Religion has to sustain your whole life, or it's not worthwhile. Barnes is calling our bluff. Do we believe this stuff that we profess? And if not, then what's the point of it? But here's the thing. Jesus got there before Julian Barnes. It's God or nothingness, Jesus says. There is life nowhere else. The Holy Trinity will be satisfied with nothing less than complete and utter transparency about where we are seeking life. God burns away every other thing that is sought for its own sake as the source of life. But he he also promises abundant life to everyone who claims him and is willing to be pruned by the Father. The process of pruning that Jesus describes here is at its most basic, the lifelong process of handing more and more of ourselves over to the Holy Trinity, relinquishing more and more of our wills so that Christ's divine life is growing up in us, filling us with its fullness. Christianity in the West is weak because we've been playing at it. We've been trying to provide a little sacred canopy with the language and the symbols of the faith for some other life that we would prefer to be living on our own terms. But we have not for all that ceased to bear fruit. Because you see, bearing fruit is not about us anyway. We bear fruit insofar as we are connected to the vine. The church is an objective reality. The preaching of the word, the celebration of the sacraments, the fellowship of the saints are never inefficacious. Jesus always makes for himself a people through them. Because God loves the church as Christ's own bride and his own body, he will never abandon it. And the gates of hell will never win out against it. Whatever's going on in the world right now, whatever's happening in your world right now, hang on to that promise. There's an objectivity to the gospel that goes beyond whatever we're feeling about it and however we're responding to it. The way this story turns out doesn't hinge upon you and me. 
It rests upon much stronger hands than yours and mine. And praise God for that. Hallelujah. Am I right? The word and the sacraments and prayer and fellowship have kept us rooted in the vine. And Jesus has been present in them, bearing much fruit through us. But we are now also being pruned and tested and made to take this whole thing much more seriously so that Christ may grow up in us, so that through our fruit we may be more visible to the world, that Christ may be more visible to the world through us. The vine image from this passage needs to be what fills our imagination. We need to meditate upon this image. But I actually think that in our lives, the growth of the kingdom looks a lot more like those mushrooms that are spread through these microscopic and basically undetectable networks of underground mycelium. The work of God always objectively roots us in the vine of Christ. And in being rooted in Christ, we are always interconnected with the whole work of the kingdom and the whole work of the saints. Remember, in our Eucharistic liturgy, whenever we celebrate the Eucharist, we always pray that our voices will be joined to angels and archangels and with the whole company of heaven. Our work is objectively connected with the work of the saints. But the shape of this whole thing isn't visible to us. And many times, it seems like the whole thing is dormant or dead. The kingdom of God is not built in a way that the world recognizes through high-profile conquests. It's built stealthily, silently, relationally. And more importantly, the work of the kingdom is built through defeat. It's paradoxical, but it's built through defeat. It's built by people very silently and humbly living out the way of the cross in their ordinary lives. As the theologian Dale Bruner puts it, the tree that was planted on Calvary has shoots going out into all the world. And whenever Christians faithfully bear suffering in the name of Jesus, we are continuing that work. The pruning that the Father does to the branches refers to the gradual giving up ourselves to the organic work of God. And this most often happens through suffering. Now, because this is abused, I feel like I have to say, I don't mean in this remain in abusive relationships or anything like that. But what I am saying is that vulnerability and openness to the pain and the suffering of the world is what it looks like to bear much fruit in the name of Jesus. Giving up more and more of ourselves, decreasing that Jesus may increase in us, is painful. What it looks like is the suffering that every, every disciple of Jesus bears for the sake of Jesus. To be pruned is painful, but it is not pointless. It cannot be understood from the vantage of the person who is presently enduring the pruning. It can only be grasped, and then only partially, when we look at it retrospectively. When we're able to see the goodness that has been birthed from within the crucible of that suffering. Inside of the suffering, it only looks and feels like destruction. To endure is really to have confidence that this image of the vine that Jesus gives us is an image of what reality really looks like. This is what life really is like. It is to grasp at a gut level that being pruned is simply what it means to, be remain, to, is to, is to remain rooted in Jesus. And through that, to remain open to the pain of the world for His glory. We have to remember that this work is not going to be evident or visible to us when we're enduring it. It's going to be a lot more like the silent and underground growth of the mushroom. 
Now, this is challenging work to keep the, the fact that we are being grafted more fully into the vine of Jesus through this pruning. But we can spur ourselves on to believe that this really is what reality is like. We can develop the resilience we need to persevere in the Christian life and in the way of the cross through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the thing is, we don't really have a choice in the matter. We don't have a choice in whether or not we're going to develop this resilience. Jesus promises that we're going to be pruned by the Father. It's not like if you want to, you'll be pruned by the Father. No, we're going to be pruned by the Father. It's a kind of testing of whether we're actually committed to this faith in Jesus Christ. And if we do not persevere in the testing, eventually we're going to give the whole thing up. It's simply too costly if it isn't true. If we want to develop this re resilience that leads to endurance, there are very practical ways we can do this. The first way is quite simply to let the organic images of the creation to do their work, to stir us up to the wonder and to marvel at the power and efficacy of this work of God. Very simply, we can do this by spending more time outside in the creation itself. We can become gardeners. We can become birders. I never understood birders until I became, you know, my, 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 until I uh, became mid-30s, you know. And now it's like, it's like everywhere I look, I see birds and the fabulousness of their colors and their plumage. But we need to spend this time allowing the nature itself to build us up into our, into wonder at these images. As we become more immersed in the created order, our ability to comprehend and interact with these organic metaphors of Scripture deepens. And being outside, actually, is one of the few activities that's consistent with social distancing during the COVID pandemic, so might as well give yourself to it anyway, right? But while you're there, develop a contemplative attention to the creation itself. Start to notice things that are out there so that these images can build you up into appreciation for, for the organic metaphors of Scripture. And we can also, as I said a couple of weeks ago, and in combination with spending more time outside, meditate on these organic images that the Scripture gives us itself in the process of salvation. You can this week meditate on the icon that I showed you earlier, or you can read through this passage itself very slowly many, time, many times this week and let, it, let its images soak into you. But in whichever way you choose to deepen this week and your appreciation for these organic images for salvation, I pray that you will set aside distraction. Because the goal of the Christian life is that Christ would be more, more deeply formed in us, that we would be more deeply rooted in, in, the, in the vine, the true vine, which is Jesus. So I pray that you will give yourself to that work this week. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.